0: You're listening to The Cycling Podcast Femina, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches.
1: Well, hello and welcome to The Cycling Podcast Femina. My name is Rose Manley and this month I'm joined by... Two faces fresh from the Giro. Fresh faces from the Giro, <laughs> definitely. Orla <laughs> Shenoui. <All are> <laughs> all, Rancid all from the Giro. <laughs> pulling her least fresh face at me as we speak.
2: Do you know, I can't remember the last time I felt less fresh, but we'll go with it anyway. It's a podcast. Nobody needs to know.
1: No one knows. No one knows. And Lionel Burney.
3: Hello, fresh as ever, Rose, fresh as ever. Yes. I, had, I skipped the final week of the Giro, so I'm uh, fresh as a daisy.
1: <laughs> yeah, tell us, well, I was going to get you both, to, well, I think the, the key, the big Giro uh, moment, the key racing moment for the Giro is quite obvious, but what was your best, what's your best meal? That's the key question.
3: Oh, um, we had,
1: amazing.
3: we had a really, really good meal in a very pretty little town just across from the strait of messina the night we came over from sicily the town's name was silla i, I think i'm right in saying the the restaurant was uh, spectacular it was all fresh pasta seafood just delicious um lovely small portions but everything really hit the spot
1: small, small portions um, but sadly what? what what's that sorry small portions
3: hmm? as yeah, a positive. Well, you know as a positive, well, because you can have several courses. Oh, and, I see. You? Uh, you
4: just so I worked away my way. Properly. Th-
3: yeah, did it did it all properly. Worked my way through the menu. Sadly, that was also the night I lost my sunglasses recording the podcast. I laughed. Laugh. I, I, I did a fake laugh at something Daniel said. <laughs> rock backwards. And uh, my sunglasses slipped off my head into the sea. So, did, I'm um, wow. so sorry to say, Lionel, that that was
2: one of my highlights of the podcast coverage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just find it so amusing.
1: <laughs> know,
3: Such a painting. We suffer, for, a vivid we suffer for our art, Orla.
1: Yeah. Orla, what was your best? Obviously, you weren't out at the Jura, but you could still have your best meal, couldn't you? Best meal in Bath, I guess. Yeah, I guess my best meal is probably a good old English
2: Indian. Oh, which lovely. is what I miss when I'm in Amsterdam a good old British Indian. So I had a few of those. We did have a few um, Italian nights as well, of course, in honour of the Jura d'Italia, a few pizzas. But um, fairly standard fare with no variety, really, other than different restaurants around Bath yeah. for three and a half weeks. And I'm not sure how many restaurants there are in Bath, but I think I've probably visited almost all of them by now. Good fuel for your dancing.
1: Good fuel for your dancing as well. All of that. <laughs> Don't think that that escaped our attention.
2: <laughs> I was carb loading of an evening to make sure... That I had plenty of uh, energy for the following days' boogies. Yes, that was um, among my more dignified professional moments.
1: <laughs> well, I have to say, living vicariously through your giro, both of your giro coverages has wet my appetite for the stage racing season on the women's calendar, which has already mm. already begun, and that is what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. And we've got we've got three killer interviews. Actually, we have got Ellen Van Dyke, um, who's obviously the new. Our record holder, which happened just uh, just this week, uh, we've got Ashley Mormon Passio who's in her last. Uh, year of racing and can and can never be discounted as a GC favourite in any stage race I would say Um, and we've got Lizzie Banks who is obviously most famous for being our companion on the women's tour last year Lionel that really (laughs) has you know rocketed her profile. The of her career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And she'll be giving us her uh, predictions for this year's edition so we've got all that to come but before that we have of course Aula's News Roundup.
2: It feels bonkers that we're into stage racing Mm. by now, doesn't it? I feel like we've had a full jam-packed season already, and it was only whenever... Um, I sat down to write this news roundup that I fully realised Oh yeah, we're in stage racing season now You'd think that maybe would not have passed me by Until I concentrated on it, but there we go (laughs) Um, So we're going to start off with um, Itzulia Woman Which is the first edition as a stage race It was supposed to be a stage race last year But Covid put a stop to that And it effectively replaces Emakameen Beira As the national race of the Basque Country Jamie Vollering of Team ST Works won her first, her second and her third World Tour wins of the season there. All three stages and the general classification with Paulina Royackers of Canyon Schramm finishing second and Kristen Faulkner of Team Bike Exchange Jacob finishing in third. Now, as a little PS side note to that, which can't really go unmentioned, the inaugural version of that race as a stage race should have been a cause for celebration, but there was quite a bit of anger over comments made by the race organiser, Julian Eraso. Julian, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, sorry. Um, I'm sure you saw these, did you? He told Spanish radio that he was almost forced to organise the race, he said. Apparently, he called the increased number of women's races a fashion Um, So local politicians got involved with that. The deputy mayor of the region pointed out that, controversially, equality is not a fad. There you go. Um, Saying women, for the simple fact of being women, face inequalities. And that is why we will continue to defend women's sports. It's quite sad, really, that we're getting into this kind of shenanigans in 2022. Um, The official race account posted an apology on Twitter, but it, of course, highlights that while there may be more women's races as there are, we shouldn't be fooled. I don't think that it means that the races are seen to be equal by everyone. But the other argument, which we say in this podcast quite a lot, whether people agree with or not, um, do we really care what the motivation is? Ideally, we'd want people to understand that women should race as men, that it's just as exciting and it should be an equal platform. Personally, I'd still rather people were sexist and put on women's races than were sexist and didn't. Um so if they're forced into it, then sorry, that's their problem, not ours. Um at least it's a forcing of the changing landscape. Rose, you look like a little Yeah you well are. I
1: know it just always surprised me that people people say bother saying these things. Like you know, why, why did they why did he say it? It's like just shut up man Well I don't know it's just like <laughs> you know, he's got a race that on paper, you know, is great and the racing was fantastic and it's like proper Hard climbs, beautiful Basque country. So, you know why? Why do you feel the need to, to say to say stuff like this? I can't understand. Do you know what? It can only because ever take on away from radio. it. It can only ever take yeah. away from it. I didn't
2: hear the original interview, so I could be falling foul of this very classic misreporting, mistranslated interview. I don't think it was mistranslated, but it's maybe one of those things whereby it was given on radio and it maybe came up in conversation and probably he didn't intend to reveal the true nature of his thoughts quite so clearly um, and ended up slipping himself up, really, I would imagine. Um, I can't think that that was a deliberate ploy to reveal to everyone that he thought it was a load of old rubbish to have to put on women's races. <laughs> um but yeah, just dep- it's just depressing. It's depressing, but it's also a useful reminder that. That's the state of affairs, as if we needed it. Anyway, we've had a wonderful women's racing, so let's crack on with that chat. Um, I'm going to mention Durango Durango Durango-Mekameen-Saria. Not a women's World Tour race, but I do think it's worth a mention because Paulina roy did get her win there for Canyon-Sram, ahead of Veronica Ewers of EF and Cecily Udrup-Ludwig of FDJ, and also because Demi Vollering had a crash there. She had to be taken to hospital, but was released the following day and returned to action at the Vuelta a Burgos, where she took a stage win. Remarkably. Juliette Labu uh, of DSM took the overall win. Um, Evita Music of FTJ was second and Vollering, as well as a stage win, also finished in third. Other stages went to Lota Capecchi, Matilda Vitillo of b Pink and Mavi Garcia of UAE. Now, this surprised me that it was her first ever world Tour win. I hadn't realised that. She was second at Strada, of course. She was fifth at Flesh twice, sixth at Amstel twice, three times national Spanish champion on the road and time trial. And it wasn't until she took her win that I realised she hadn't had one before. Yeah, I, I think it's because so, she does those long stunning
1: Virginia. solo breaks, doesn't she? They yeah. stick in your mind, but they're not, they are not actually just so cool. We wins? talk about her so yeah. much. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so long over G and, um, and brilliant that she was able to get that. Um, The Lotto Touring and Ladies Tour then. um, Alex Manley of Bike Exchange. Jaco, your cousin, Rose, (laughs) uh, won four stages of that race as well as the overall, with her teammate Georgia Baker winning one stage and Yulia Biryukova of Arkea Pro Cycling, the only rider not from Bike Exchange to have taken a stage there. Um, It's remarkable that the first win uh, of... Bike Exchange, Jayco, in Europe this season was Alex's first stage win. And then, of course, they finished with five wins a week later. Then we're on to Ride London Classic, because we have to pronounce it that way, apparently. How it's spelled. Um... And after having so many different winners across the Spring Classics, we had another lockout of a race at Ryan London Classic. This time with Lorena Vibis taking the three stages and the overall. Elisa Balsamo of Trek finished in second and Emma Norsgaard of Movistar in third. So fantastic work there by um, Vibis. And then finally you've mentioned her, well almost finally, you've mentioned her already, Rose Ellen Van Dyke has broken the World Hour record. She beat Joss Loudon's really recently set distance of 48.405 and set a new distance to beat of 49.254. So a whole 849 metres further than Joss Loudon, which is over three laps more, which is quite a distance to beat. And then, as a very P.S., um, Paulina Royackers and Elise Shabby uh, have both been struck down by COVID, so we will be DNS's for the upcoming women's tour. Oh, and as a P.P.S., <laughs> uh, the women's tour um, has been announced, um, confirmed rather, that it will be live streamed this year. Whoop, 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 on GCN and Eurosport. So that is bloomin' welcome news. And a real game changer for that race and for uh, fans. So it's wonderful. That's your News Roundup.
0: Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat or drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimise your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalised analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
3: Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for sponsoring the Cycling Podcast Feminine and the whole family of Cycling Podcast shows. I'm sure you heard that I was using the Super Sapiens system during the Giro just to monitor my blood glucose levels. I don't like to uh, don't like to get hangry, you know. <laughs> no one likes you getting hangry, Lina, I think. No. The people well, that you're with in- don't
1: like that either, I would
3: imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, uh, Daniel Freib is not a big fan of having lunch. And uh, I mean this is this is just completely alien to me, this idea of skipping lunch. Um but getting not into a fan a-
2: of people who are not a fan of having lunch, <laughs> to be honest. I can't jail, I don't get it.
3: But previous years I've found it quite hard to persuade him that you know look I need to have lunch should we stop somewhere should we at least pick something up to to eat in the car such as the glamour of life covering the races as you both know um but I had the app so I could just Tell him that my blood glucose levels <laughs> are dipping and they're going to get to a critical level where I'm going to start getting grouchy. So we need to stop at a fatty <laughs> furbo so I can get an arancini or a slice of pizza. So the, the whole system really um, made the, the Giro a much more pleasurable um, experience for me because, you know, I never never dipped into the red. At all.
2: I like that as well because you can totally disassociate yourself from any responsibility. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's a blood, gl- look, it's a
1: blood glucose. The data. That's the thing telling me I need a slice of pizza.
3: The data Really, want the there.
1: notifications going straight to Daniel's phone, really. Like, beep, 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 Lionel needs feeding. Oh, God, yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: feed you, Lionel,
3: feed you know Lionel. It? Well, you can get updates. You can get um, flash updates to tell you when you're uh, when you're dipping or spiking. Uh, maybe, yeah, I could suggest to the Super Sapient developers that they get uh, have a function where I can get that information sent to somebody else's phone, Perfect. so that they know they know I need to be taken shock, somewhere.
1: Maybe. this is what they wanted from the sponsorship, didn't they? It's like you know, when a sponsor goes to a pro team <laughs> and they want the feedback from the people on the front line. It's exactly <laughs> that, isn't it?
3: Absolutely right. Absolutely the driving
1: right. innovation.
3: Yeah, well, everyone can find out more about Super Sapiens at supersapiens.com. So there's a new World Hour record holder, Ellen van Dyke, The Dutch rider has, well, shattered Joss Loudon's record. Or as you said, uh, three laps it equates to, but a couple of minutes it equates to. She basically overtook Joss Loudon's mark with two minutes to spare. Really impressive performance. And it makes me wonder whether she's kind of put it on the shelf out of reach of everyone except Ellen Van Dyke. She's the only <laughs> one who can reach the record at the moment. I can't, I don't know, you, you perhaps know better than me whether there's any other pretender out there at the moment who might have their eyes on, well, not only Van Dyke's record, but this magical 50 kilometre mark, which now really is within touching distance. I know it's still another few laps, but um, it's starting to get closer, isn't it?
2: It is starting to get closer. And and you'll hear in a moment when I chat to Ellen, um, how frustrated she feels at the suggestion that it's only another couple of laps. (laughs) When when she was describing the effort, she said, "I, I, I put everything into that. I could not have gone faster. And yet, and yet she's up for doing it again. So clearly she thinks she can go faster. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to chat to Ellen because um, here's the thing with the World Hour Record. Um, obviously, we've had um, a whole raft of people having a go at it since the UCI changed the um, leg- the legislation, the rules, um, and made it much more attractive for people to go for. Um, and I get it. I get why people want to make history, obviously. From a physiological standpoint, I don't get it. And I never, ever will. I will never understand what it takes to be able to go further in one hour to push yourself further than anyone in history has done what I can relate to and also can't understand however (laughs) is the psychological element of it and that's what absolutely fascinates me and before we started recording I was saying to you both I mean I think especially these days we have so many distractions and we we indulge so many distractions on a minute by minute basis that when I sit, I write several columns. When I sit down to write, the reason I enjoy writing them is because I have to discipline myself to sit down. The reason I like meditating is because I have to discipline myself to not be looking at my phone. But I manage like 15 minutes of writing before all of a sudden I need to know what James O'Brien has just tweeted or I need to know what somebody's Insta story is showing up or, you know, that coffee spill on the kitchen workshop is suddenly completely... Uh, offensive to me and I must stand up and I must clean it and while I'm cleaning I'll do the dishes and blah 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 I just can't understand being able to focus so entirely and completely on one thing for 60 full minutes I find that fascinating
1: so that's one of the things I wanted to talk to I read also that uh, Ella Van Dyke uh, had her head totally down the whole time because, you know, sometimes people get tempted to, to look up a little bit onto the line. But she had her head completely down. And I think I read that Lizzie Dynan had said that would gain her kind of 600 metres uh, on her distance by the fact that she net, didn't for a second look up in any way. Wasn't tempted to do that at all. It's incredible discipline, isn't discipline, it?
2: Discipline, that discipline. Even knowing I shouldn't look up would make me look up. You know, you don't want to break your own rules.
3: Well, I was going to say, you know, the hour record for the Generations Edge is only going to be about twelve minutes, isn't it? It's going to be shortened <laughs> your <minute> attention <laughs> span.
2: <laughs> do you know what? That's a really good shot, though, actually. Because, yeah, you could have a 12-minute record, couldn't you? And then the R record would be something, you know, a, a, a sort of an analogue throwback to to pre-social media days or whatever. Really or you
5: like could do an analog analog hour with your phone nature. on the
1: front. That's what. That's also a way of doing it. Oh, and a phone on your uh, handlebars. You've got to be live-streaming the whole thing for an hour and then see what then that, you get. But then that's
2: the other thing, you see, because even... Um, in terms of distraction and things that you can focus on, you're not allowed a bike computer, of course, to be able to do the R record. So you cannot even keep across your own figures and, and, and be able to think about your power output and measure it, you know, which at least occupies your mind in some way. So anyway, so I got down to the nitty gritty of all the important questions, as you'll hear, when I chatted to Ellen Van Dyke. Um, so here is the new World R record, Ellen Van Dyke. Ellen congratulations on your world record that's pretty special
6: thank you very much yeah it was definitely a special project and i'm uh, i'm happy we uh, we made it
2: I like that you say we. I've been reading a little bit about the army of people who've gone into making this record happen. Just how big a project is it?
6: Yeah, it was a really big project. Uh, Trek put a lot of people into it. It was, yeah, I mean, it's been super cool to have so much support from the team. Um, Yeah, there were around 15 specialists around me and then there were still many more people working on it uh, in the background. So yeah, I felt very special and very fortunate to have all this support uh, with me. And yeah, that's also why I say we, because mm-hmm. yeah, the, the hour itself, uh, I, I had to write it. But um, def- in the in the preparations, I, I definitely was not alone. And I uh, I think the others did more than, than me. So um, <laughs> yeah, it was definitely uh, teamwork.
2: You say special, you say Fortunate, but that brings pressure as well doesn't it all of those people who've put so much effort into you delivering
6: yeah definitely i mean uh, for sure i wanted it myself but then mm. when so many people get involved and everybody wants to, wants you to perform um yeah you do not only do it for yourself anymore but also you feel that you you owe them something so yeah for sure it gave pressure and um yeah, I think it's been the the project in which I felt the most pressure in my mm-hmm. life because it was only about me all the time. So, uh, yeah, I definitely felt like I, I had to give something back and uh, I'm happy I could do that in the end.
2: So this may seem like a silly question um, because I guess the answer is that you have the chance to go down in the history books. But why? Why did you want to do the R record and why now? And I ask that question only because anyone I've spoken to who's ever attempted it talks about the agony of it and how difficult it is and i think it's very easy for us in the sidelines to watch rider after rider going for this record and think it's almost become quite ordinary when it's anything but why did you decide to do it
6: yeah to me it's always been fascinating like i always was fascinated by the hour records um since I was a cyclist, since I saw Leontine from Morsel breaking the hour record in 2003, I thought already, oh, that's, that's really <laughs> the biggest thing you can do. That's the ultimate thing. So I always had it on my wish list to do it one day. But yeah, I mean, I was saying it also quite often. Yeah, one day I will do it, one day I will do it. But you need so many people for it, so so much time, so much money, so much effort, um, not just from me, but from like a whole team, like I said before. So um, yeah, it's not just something you, you decide and you think, oh, next month we do that. So a lot of preparation goes into it. And I, I was super lucky and fortunate that Trek uh, wanted to do that with me, and uh, yeah, that's when we decided this December that we were gonna do it, and uh, yeah, since then I'm, I'm just super excited about it because to me it's the ultimate thing you can do as a time trialist. It's it's such a yeah, like you say, it's a it's a brutal hour. You have to do everything, the pain, anything by yourself or by your feeling you do not have any measurements on your on your bike or any uh, computers mm. um yeah it's to me it's the, it's the ultimate time trial challenge and uh yeah being a time trialist that's uh yeah that's, that was something that was always super high on my on my wish list
2: how difficult is that how much of a shift is that to not have any computer on your bike we're so used to riders now watching the numbers and You know keeping an eye on on whatever computer it is that they're using to not be able to measure your output must be quite difficult is it
6: yeah it was a bit difficult but also not so bad because every lap you can hear your lap time so you Mm. always know if you're on the right path or not or if you're doing well and at the same time yeah i only have one gear so i can go by cadence so if i feel that the cadence Mm. is right then the lap times are normally right as well so um yeah but at one point you know kind of which power you can do and which you what you can hold for the hour and then once you start practicing that it, beca- it becomes so natural that you you don't need to see the numbers all the time to get that feeling so yeah just by practicing you you will get a very good feeling of of what you, what you can do and and in what zone you are i think
2: what fascinates me most actually about the hour record isn't even so much the physicality of it, um, because I, I can appreciate that that's something I would never be able to experience, but more the psychology of it and what is going through your head for those 60 minutes. Did you find that you were able to get into a bit of a flow state where you weren't thinking quite so much about things, you were just in the rhythm, or did you have to focus for pretty much every minute of those 60 minutes?
6: yeah the mental challenge is definitely the biggest challenge i think well i don't know physically it's also challenging mm. but for sure it's it's uh yeah it comes close um and for me it was really hard in the beginning to not just start counting down all the time mm. to not think after five minutes oh only 55 to go or not only <laughs> still 55 to go <laughs> um yeah and finding a flow for sure you're looking for that that's the mo- the best thing because then Time passes quick, um, and everything almost goes by itself. But I, I barely had that. I had some moments where I, I didn't think about the time, and I was, I was running quite smooth. But still, yeah, it's always somewhere in the back of your head. Um, I was counting down every five minutes, or my boyfriend was counting down every five minutes, so I knew. I was in the hour uh, but I was definitely looking forward to him coming back into the track telling me I had another five minutes done so um, yeah this was this was definitely difficult and um, yeah I think one of the hardest parts of the hour for sure.
2: So you didn't really manage to get into that state then when you're not really thinking about anything where everything is just flowing around you that was I guess a goal that was unattainable was it?
6: Yeah for sure you're looking for that but I mean, I had some moments where I had this flow, but uh, there was still a lot of room for thoughts also. And um, yeah, I thought in the beginning, I tried to think about other things and, and not too much about uh, about the pain or the time or other things. Um, and then towards the middle, it was difficult because then I really started to think, oh, only halfway, still so much to go. <laughs> um, and towards the end, um, I wouldn't say it become became easier. Well, the... the and the mentality, the mental part became easier, but the physical part became harder. But mm. uh, yeah, because you know, you're gonna, you're coming closer to the end. Um, and also you hear a lot of people shouting and cheering for you. And then thinking about all these people that were involved and that put so much effort into it and thinking about all the people that were close to me, um, that that definitely got me through the, the hardest parts in the end.
2: So you say at the start you were trying to think of other things to take your mind off it all. I'm, I'm presuming it wasn't like shopping lists and Netflix series, was it? <laughs>
6: yeah, well, kind of. I mean, I, I, I did that for sure. In the actual hour, it was difficult to really think about something else, but then... Uh still I was trying to get into my own zone and not and not start thinking about time, but just about finding the rhythm and getting into it and uh yeah, being in my really being in my own place, in my own in my own little bubble and that, that uh that helped in the beginning, I have to say.
2: Did you allow yourself then to enjoy it a little bit towards the end? Maybe enjoy is the wrong word, but when you realize that you're on track to break the record Did you allow yourself to take in the moment a little bit you say about hearing people, sharing your name and thinking about your friends and your family?
6: Yeah, no, no, definitely not at all. No, <laughs> um, that's, that's clear because, uh, no, I in the, in the end I couldn't, uh, everything became a bit vague and I, I didn't know how much still to go. And my boyfriend was screaming the time, but he was saying 50 something. And uh, at least 50 something it's really important to really know how much that is. <laughs> what the something is. is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I couldn't hear it anymore. I, I, I just kept going and I thought he said 54, but then I... I heard another six minutes oh. uh, I don't know later on, so I was a bit confused. Um and then I heard him saying one minute, and then I thought, okay, one more to just four more laps or I don't know, three more laps, and then it should be fine. Um, I was just so much looking forward to this end, yeah. And also when I when I suffer a lot, I get a little bit grumpy in my head. I just, <laughs> just think like, why can't they tell me how long I feel like? <laughs> <to go? laughs> you know. But that's just because I'm so uh, so tired then. So uh yeah. I I was very relieved when I when I heard the bell.
2: Yeah, it'd be absolutely maddening to not know how much longer there is left. Was yeah. it as was it as painful as as you expected it to be?
6: It hurt a lot, and I couldn't go any faster. This was really it mm. I could do. But um, I expected actually that I would that I would really have a lot of problems the days after as well, uh, because the position is so crazy and because you go so deep. But actually the next day I felt quite fine already. And uh, yeah, I expected maybe that that the, um, the damage was a bit more, but mm. that was not so bad. So um, yeah, I'm quite happy about that.
2: You're happy obviously with the record. Are you also happy with the distance that you set? Does that, had you set yourself a goal in mind before you took on this challenge?
6: Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm definitely happy with the record. Uh, and I mean, of course, when you're, it's not that close to 50 a lot of people think it's super close to 50 but it's still three laps which is a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) so um, this was all I definitely could do right now and of course you're somewhere close to 50 so then yeah you're always looking at this 50 but uh, right now this was really it and I think um, it's it's easy to say yeah I want to go to 50 but I knew already in the preparation that was not going to be possible because, um, yeah, I just didn't have the physical abilities uh, at this moment to do that in Grenzen, for sure not. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't expect that and I, I I can understand that from the outside it looks like, oh yeah, she wanted 50 or she wanted to go there, mm-hmm. but um, no, I'm just really happy I got it over the 49 and um, yeah, I'm satisfied with
2: uh, with this distance. Would you do it again? Would you ever have another tilt at it? Yeah, who knows oh. <laughs> Spoken oh, like yeah. a true time trialist Oh my goodness <laughs>
6: Yeah, well, I like I say I actually really enjoyed it uh, Looking back at it I think it was a great project I mean, of course I didn't enjoy the last 15 minutes of this hour <laughs> They were horrible But uh, I don't know how it is when, I mean, a lot of women They get pregnant They get a baby And they want another one right? <laughs> So <laughs> yeah. I think some, yeah. somehow You forget the pain, baby I don't know So, um yeah, well, I, I'm not saying no. I don't, I didn't plan it yet, of course,
1: but uh, who knows? Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please.
3: That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. And if your small business is growing and you want to find people to add to your team, LinkedIn Jobs could be just the place to find the right person. Because you can create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs and tap into a huge network of professional people with over 30 million people in the UK alone. You add your job listing and the purple hiring hashtag frame to your LinkedIn profile and that will help spread the word that you're hiring and help the right people find you. There are simple tools like screening questions to make it easier to focus on the right candidates who have just the right skills and experience for your organization. So you can quickly prioritize who you would like to interview and whittle down to a shortlist. This is one of the reasons why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires. LinkedIn helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. That's linkedin.com slash cycle, and you can post your job ad for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, that was all as chat with Ellen Van Dyke, the new hour record holder. And I have to say, I like the analog nature of the world hour record. It's cycling at its purest, isn't it? As you say, no bike computer, no data at the fingertips, just having to take um, the, the cues from Support staff on the track side—it's the purest challenge, isn't it? And it's a really easily understandable one, isn't it? How far can you cycle in an hour? Uh, it would be a shame if our shortening attention spans were to, to somehow, uh, you know, denigrate the importance of the hour record. Um, fascinating to hear that she may well go for it again. Um, but equally fascinating, Ollie, your question about whether she was thinking about shopping lists or netflix while um i'm not sure i could have got away with asking that question but as you will know the, you know all the hard-hitting the, questions the fans. men's the men's hour record uh, holder completely incapable of multitasking in that way anyway so wouldn't have had anything else going on through their mind <laughs> that's probably me cancelled now isn't it yeah that's know. it
2: that's the end of you <laughs> well I was gonna to add to it, maybe I shouldn't. But yeah, I just thinking a lot of a stereotypically binary male, only able to think of ow, 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 ow
3: <laughs> Exactly. This hurts. Obviously capable of
2: so much more intellect, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know the um, the Homer Simpson um, sketch where I I can't remember something's electrocuted, but there's a doughnut involved in it, and so he touches it and ow! Ow. <laughs> oh, because it's a donut fantastic. I'm going to As stop reward, you all there Before so, we yeah, get this precious
1: show cancelled uh, Immediately <laughs> So I'm going I'm to steer us firmly Back onto women's cycling Which is what we're here to discuss Instead of
3: Absolutely. Uh, some
1: falling into some gender stereotype traps And Twitter storms That will inevitably happen <laughs> off the back of this So I'm going to steer us onto the women's tour. And uh, Lionel, you caught up with Lizzie Banks, who uh, who won't be riding this year's uh, edition, and of course joined us uh, as a three uh, last year, which was only in, it was October, wasn't it, that we had the women's was, tour yeah. last. Yeah, so. yeah. So it's come around uh, incredibly quickly. Um, that's just starting in early June, and that's a, a six-stage race. And uh, yeah, Lionel, you spoke to Lizzie about what we should be expecting from this year's edition.
3: Well, Lizzie, what should we be looking out for at the women's tour this year? Because my initial assessment that we're going to have five sprint finishes and then the race decided on Black Mountain on the penultimate day uh, may be a little bit wide of the mark.
5: Yeah, you're right, Lionel. I I think that it's definitely not going to be five sprint stages and a mountaintop finish. Um, But I do think that the first couple of stages will probably be processional sprint stages. We now know that Lorena Vibas is coming to the women's tour and we say that because we don't have a full start list at the time of recording. So it's difficult to, to say who the main protagonists will be. But I think it's unequivocal having seen Lorena Vibas' performance um, over the three days at Ride London, that she will be out and out the favourites in the sprints. She was so far ahead, especially in the final sprint at Ride London, that um, we can't can't really pick anybody else out for, for those first two stages. The final stage into Oxford also looks like a sprint stage, but potentially it could be an opportunity for the breakaway as I expect that there will be three GC stages, um, stages three, four and five, which are down on the borders of uh, of South Wales, but actually in Tewkesbury and Gloucester before heading up to Wrexham and then into Welshpool and then down into South Wales again, starting in Pembury Country Park and finishing on Black Mountain for the first ever mountaintop finish in the women's tour.
3: Yeah, you say the first ever mountaintop finish, Liz, but there was an uphill finish in 2019, which uh, Cassia Nivadoma won at Burton Dasset. But Black Mountain is a different kettle of fish, isn't it?
5: It is indeed. I mean, I was racing in that edition in 2019 that finished on Burton Dasset, and it was a short, steep, couple of minute climb, and it wasn't a mountain. It was enough to make splits, but Interestingly enough, actually, Black Mountain that was also in that 2019 edition, despite when you look at it on paper, you might think, oh, wow, that's going to be the big shakeup in the GC. I don't actually think that it's steep enough to cause the big splits needed in the GC. So I think that you're actually going to be looking like we so often do in the women's tour. At the time gaps being produced by by these sprints, perhaps the, the time bonuses on the line where you've got a small group sprinting for 10, 6 and 4 um, in stages like Stage 3 into Gloucester and Stage 4 into Welshpool.
3: So a different style of racing to last year when, of course, Demi Vollering set up her overall win with a really commanding performance in the time trial, didn't she? And there wasn't really any other territory to really impact on the GC battle, but it would be different this time round. And, well, Demi Vollering, one rider we know won't be on the start line when they kick off in Colchester next week.
5: Absolutely. So we're we're definitely going to have a new winner this year. But who it's going to be, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I can say really. It's interesting because I think Canyon would have had an incredibly strong lineup with Kashi and Ivedoma, who is confirmed to be coming. But Elise Shabby, who I think would have been, um, you know, Somebody who could have actually won this race overall um, and last year was the winner of the Queen of the Mountains jersey, she unfortunately had COVID last week. So it's unknown yet whether she will participate and if she does, how she will be. Paulina Royak has also had COVID, which is a shame seeing as she was in such brilliant form in um, the Spanish races in May. And so I think what we're going to see in this race is in stages three and four, what you've got is you've got the challenging terrain in the middle of the stage. And for instance, in stage three, it's about 20 kilometres from from the last of the climbs to the finish. And then in stage four, it's, it's quite a bit further to the finish. So what you want is a strong team that can really whittle it down early and then play that game and get someone away. I think in these races, it's going to be incredibly important to really break it up early. In the stage, stage four from Wrexham to Welshpool, I was super excited about this stage because I do a lot of riding in that area and it had the potential to go over from Llangothlin to Llanarmondifron Kerryog and go over some absolutely brutal climbs. But really, they're taking the easy way around up from Pennymont Vaur up to Hinant Bank. That's probably the hardest climb on the race, but that's actually about 70 kilometres out from the finish. And after that, there's a very flat run around Lake Vernwy before the second QOM of the day and then a relatively easy run into the finish. So it's going to be about having strength in numbers in order to, to break up that race and hold those numbers to the finish in order to keep those small groups away, as well as having somebody that can take those sprints and just take, take those opportunities, really.
3: I mean, you say a new name on the roll of honour, but I mean, Cassia Nuvadoma, she won in twenty seventeen. She's coming back. Corinne Lebecki won in twenty eighteen. She's on the start list, as far as we know at the moment. Who are some of the other riders who we know are confirmed for uh, the first stage in Colchester on June sixth? It starts.
5: Well, like I said with Cassia, the, the the problem I think might be the the lack of strength with the team. Um, with the riders that, that would have been so critical for her not being there. Corinne Lebecki will have Anna Henderson there, uh, who will be an incredible resource for her in the finals. But I think that Trek Segafredo have got an interesting lineup that we know so far with Ellen Van Dyke and Elisa Longo Borghini. And although a lot of people don't think of Ellen Van Dyke as a climber, this isn't a pure climber's race. And Ellen Van Dyke can get up nearly everything we know she's in incredible form after her hour record just a couple of weeks ago and with that pairing of Elisa and Elisa Longa borghini and ellen van dyke it's really exciting you've also got riders like marta bastianelli if she's riding for uae adq she could be a real potential a real protagonist for the win here because she can get over these climbs as well and as we know she can sprint I'll be really interested to see what Team FDJ bring because they've been going from strength to strength. We know they're bringing Capone, who was second tier last year, but of course it was a much flatter race last year. So she might be a protagonist in the sprints, but she's not going to be there for the overall.
3: Well, Volering not defending her title from last year, do you know what she's up to instead? Because of course this is the first of three big stage races in fairly quick succession, isn't it? Because the Giro Rosa comes up, a few weeks later and then of course the inaugural Tour de France fam
5: well I would expect Vollering to be away doing a training camp at this time potentially going up to altitude it's the perfect time to have an altitude block if you're not racing the women's tour in order to prepare for um, the national championships later this month which which many pro races in many countries are actually required to do and then that going into the Girodonna and then that being preparation for, of course, so many riders' biggest goal of the season, which is the Tour de France Femme. So that's another reason why in the past we've not seen Annemiek van Vluden here, and I think it's unlikely that we'll see her here this year. I know that right now she's up on a training camp up in Andorra, um, and it's just such a critical preparation period for those stage race blocks. Um, previously, you could have used the women's tour as preparation for it, but but now because there's the giradonic and then the Tour de France after that, you risk being being too tired, and also there's just not really another chance that you can put in an altitude block.
0: The Cycling Podcast Femina is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
3: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast Femina. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. I'm, I'm smirking because I'm wondering if I'm expected yes, to you see <laughs>
2: we'll Always you. expected to see.
3: Never, never. I'm sorry. You're sipping
2: no, I... up one of the podcast beers there, Lionel. I, f- I feel like another two or three of those in, and we'd barely be able to stop you with your football chance. Yes, exactly.
3: Possibly, yeah. I could do a football chant, but, I mean, anyone who's seen me uh, do karaoke will, will, <gasps> will re- recoil in horror. Who, who has after.
2: seen you do karaoke, Lionel? You a big do question. karaoke, Lionel.
3: A, a group this of my friends from long, long ago, I, I got pushed up to do a duet. <gasps> um, uh, and and the, the, the girl that I did the duet with, she had the voice of an angel. <laughs> And I had the voice of a of a malfunctioning chainsaw. Unfortunately, oh. it was, well, it was one, possibly what was the, the most song? embarrassing. It was the one uh, "Love Lift Love Lift Me Up Where You Belong." Oh gosh,
2: ambitious! I, I don't think I know that. I don't think I know that one, Lionel. Maybe you should give us a reminder. <laughs> you have to remind
3: us. <laughs> I see what you did there, Ola. Very, yeah, nice try. Nice try. God, that
1: was a very <laughs> wow. You were really uh, yeah ambitious there, Lionel. I'd have to say it was
3: it was Christmassy. Eve, or in drunk. about 1995 uh, I was 1995? slightly drunk yes yeah. yeah
1: God when you said <laughs> yeah. a few years I ago I wasn't expecting
3: 20. 1995 yeah, tw- I was this 20 a and it's, it is it is traumatic it's all coming out now I don't know what you does nev- that say you've never about- done it since <laughs> no 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 no
2: We'll goodness. get you a couple of beers. We'll do karaoke and the cp twenty five chant. We'll be on it.
1: Yeah, you can manage that.
3: <laughs> back, certainly. Back to the back to the cycling, please.
1: Like, it's like, well, you know, as uh, to be honest, the past uh, women's tours, doing them with uh, Orla and with Richard uh, in the past few years, it, what karaoke in the car was an important part of it. So mm, it's a big part of it. Yeah, bit of Tina Turner, bit of um, Dolly Parton oh way. yes fantastic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that steers very nicely into uh this year's edition that we were unfortunately the cycling podcast won't be able to um be there to do that our daily coverage at the women's tour this time around um uh, but we still have plenty to to say on it about what what we expect is coming up what did uh, everyone make of lionel what did you make of lizzie's predictions there that she set out
3: well i mean i defer to her Knowledge, But I'm surprised she's downplaying the significance of Black Mountain. I think that's a really hard climb and and the time gaps will be enough to sort out the GC. And what will be interesting is how the riders who feel a bit more vulnerable when it comes to Black Mountain approach the days leading up to that. And as she said, you know, targeting those time bonuses, maybe trying to get things going. It could be some really aggressive racing on the couple of days where it might split up, but possibly won't. They're going to be the ones I think that'll be really key. But I mean, Black Mountain, it's its difficult enough to um, to decide the overall just in, you know, the final sort of four or 500 meters, the time gaps um, may be enough. Um, I think the fact that uh, it's got a big, uphill finish does change the race in a much better and more dynamic way perhaps than last year's time trial did if you remember the time trial kind of butchered the race a bit didn't it because Demi Vollering won that so convincingly and that everyone knew the winner of the time trial basically was going to win overall barring mishaps Um, so I think it's a much more dynamic looking route and I was really encouraged to hear from Lizzie that my kind of initial kind of look at the race profile um, assessment, I was wide of the mark in thinking that it could just be kind of sprint, 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 um, and, and then just the one big day for the GC. It may well not turn out that way at all, but then having said that, I mean, who's going to look beyond Lorena Vebus in the sprints, judging by the form she's in from a few days ago at Ride London? Three out of three. The hat-trick, the GC, um, probably the quickest rider in the field, and uh i think yeah lots to um lots of people will want to try and avoid having too many sprint finishes i guess so uh, yeah it could be um it could be that there will be a, a a stage where the unexpected happens and perhaps last year we didn't really have the prospect of that
1: yeah i think uh, also Picking up on Lorena Vibas, she also has a sprint team, very much a dedicated team there, where I think other teams are kind of hedging their bets a bit um, with the potential to get breakaways away. they kind of got people who are better at those little bumpy climbs going. On. And obviously a summit finish on Black Mountain, which we have been to before, Orla. I don't know whether you remember. We went there in uh, 2019, I think it was. Um, I can't remember which stage That it was. the. That was the last stage, wasn't it? It was, was the that? last stage, yes, but it wasn't it wasn't a summit finish like it will be this time no. it, it was mid race and I remember we mm, just mm. we'd been hiding in a cafe for a, quite a while <laughs> eating Barra brith and then uh mm-hmm. popped and it but it had splintered by that stage um but it was
2: um it was a bit of a disappointing damp squib it as was I recall, very dull because mm. it was it was yeah it was literally damp. um but it was it was billed. As being the decisive moment of the race And I think a lot of the racing Had been effectively neutralised Until that point because of it And then it turned out to be not quite as um, Well, it did, it just didn't split it as much As we'd hoped it would And then there was there was too much Of a stage remaining afterwards So the fact they're going to finish On the summit I think is much, much more exciting And um, I seem to remember When they did include it as well Uh it was the climiest that uh, the women's tour had ever yes. uh, been, um, and so that was a cause for excitement. But still, we were clamouring then for a little bit more, you know that um, that there should be more to challenge the GC really and and make it less sprinty and and less breakaway. Um, so I'm really excited by that finish. I think that I'm hoping that's going to be a bit of a game changer because I'd like to see a real proper gc battle at the women's tour and i think it needs it as well because from speaking to alan van dyke who is going to be racing it um she's raced it since 2020 20, i must look at my notes. 2014 i, my notes, I think really. 2014 2014 um and you know she's pointing out as as is widely acknowledged that um it was a trailblazer of a race in so many ways because of the platform that it gave to women's racing, the fact that it was standalone, the fact that it had equal prize money, and all the rest of it. But the rest of women's cycling is caught up, and while it was still living off that good credit for quite a while, and you know, still having that platform, the racing just the the route wasn't really conducive to the most exciting racing. And I think we get so spoilt, rightly so by women's racing these days we want to see it as good as it can be and i don't think that route has allowed for that to happen really in the last couple of years so i'm hoping that um this mountain top finish will make a bit of a difference um and obviously we'll see a proper gc battle that's what i'm hopeful for
1: yeah i think it's also key that that black mountain summit finish comes on the the fifth stage fifth out of sixth at uh, six and the sixth stage is likely to be either a break, you know, a, a small breakaway or um, most likely to be a sprint. So I think it's that kind of last key opportunity uh, for a GC win. So people will be there'll be no kind of uh, keeping the powder dry for another stage. It really will be the all out uh, moment um, of the race. So I think I think that we hopefully we can expect um a close competition as well. I think I think that's key to why the Women's Tour decided to not do the time trial uh, this year because, like you said, Lionel, it did really... I can't remember how much Demi Vollering had, but over a minute of advantage and just some, you know, pretty flat stages to go afterwards, it really meant it was so easy to control uh, by SD Works. Uh, but we were going to hear from, actually, an SD Works uh, rider, Ashley Moorman-Passio, who, like Ellen Van Dyke, was there for that inaugural... Uh, women's tour back in 2014 and has done it uh, numerous times since and performed incredibly well. Um, And she was very keen. This is her last year. She's retiring at the end of the year and was very keen to be uh, there at the start line, not women's tour. She had a crash um, at Durango Durango and uh, decided to skip the Vuelta a Burgos to make sure she was in uh, perfect form for the women's tour. So uh, this is what she had to say. You said that the women's tour was always on your schedule. How much say have you had in what, what you're going to be doing, what races you're going to be doing? Because this is your last year. Did you, did you get to choose kind of your highlights of racing to do or is it a very much a team plan?
4: No, I mean, I, I am in a position where I, I can um, have quite a lot of say on my race schedule. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have I've been able to choose what I wanted to race. Interestingly enough, the women's tour wasn't actually the plan mm. at the beginning, beginning of the season because, um. Yeah, I don't know. We had in mind, um, you know, last year I I raced quite well um, off, you know, the Giro, Tokyo, and then Norway. So I demonstrated that, you know, I had the ability to, you know, to maintain my form um, over a, a longer period of time. So initially the idea was actually that I would be doing the Giro and Tour de France or Tour de Femme, a big mm. swift double. <laughs> um, and then... Um, during the classics really that's changed a little bit um so the team just you know put it out there like they said we would prefer that you put more focus on the twitter Fum and would you would you consider doing the women's tour mm. um and i actually jumped at the opportunity because although you know i was i was i believe i was able uh, to do or am able to do the giro and the twitter Fum, i just think that you know the women's tour with Altitude afterwards, and then the Twitter Farm is a more ideal scenario for me, mm-hmm. and also because I really do love racing in the UK, and it's it is a nice um, you know tour this year with some nice climbing, so it suits me. Um, whereas in the past, maybe it's been missing um, the climbs, so yeah, I'm really happy to be back um and yeah it's it's always a great race to be at a great vibe lots of spectators um and yeah the uk is kind of special to me like um, my mom has very strong uh, british uh, heritage so it's 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 a nice place to race
1: and uh, you said obviously because it isn't uh, often a very climby uh, race but you always seem to perform incredibly well uh, in the UK, well, at the women's tour, what is it about the roads or the terrain that that kind of suits you, even if it's not pure climbing?
4: Yes, I mean it's it's always sort of unrelenting, if that's kind of a good way of describing it, I suppose. You know, the road surfaces in the UK are are, are heavy, is how we would describe them. You know, so it's rough, um, rough tar, um, which means they, they they're heavy. You know, you're working hard all the time. Um, it's always up and down. Um, it can be quite harsh conditions as well, like rain or cold. Um, so, yeah, in general, yeah, those kind of tough conditions um, suit me well. The only problem in the past has been it's sometimes difficult to win. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a race like that, although I perform well, um, you know, winning is sometimes not easy because, um, you know, for me to win, it is better to have, you know, the hard climbs or a really steep climb somewhere along the way. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I've used the women's tour before, um, even without the climbing, as good preparation for future races. Um, but this time… I'm really happy we're going to Wales and we have a nice mountaintop finish. So it's it's going to be really cool, I think.
1: Because you were there when it was the very first edition back in 2014. How have you noticed this race uh, evolve over time?
4: Yeah, well, I think uh, the Women's Tour actually set the benchmark, really, for for women's cycling um, in those early days in 2014. So they were really pioneers um, in the you know, the movement of women cycling. So having started my career in 2010, you know, racing the women's tour in 2014, it was the best we'd ever seen in mm. terms of, you know, dedicated race organization to the women, although they also put on a men's race as well. Um, you know, they just did such a fantastic job of engaging the communities, the start towns, schools, you know, so crowds out on the course, you know, so it was like a little bit of a, you know, the the London 2012 Olympic Games was already a massive thing for women cycling. And then, you know, it took that momentum, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, it introduced a kind of racing, which we really loved, you know, suddenly we were really the stars and people were out watching and cheering and asking for autographs. And so for me, actually, women's to set the benchmark. And that's why it was a race that I really loved going back to because I've always you know been trying to sort of play a small part in helping to push women's cycling forward or to to talk about um, the things that are important for women's cycling to progress and so the women's tour kind of was a race that did exactly what what I was talking about Mm. Um, so I'm really happy to go back this year and to support them because um, you know we've seen a a massive shift in women's cycling now we have so many more races we have you know Peru Bay we have the Tour de France affects Wift this year, um, so it's a big year for women cycling. But we can't forget about those who were the pioneers, really, yeah. and who started the movement. So, um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Do you think it's hard for a race like the Women's Tour to compete when you when you do it, have all those races, like you mentioned, it Zulia and Tour de France, Femme coming along with much bigger climbs perhaps uh, um, more spectacular uh, i don't want to say that the uk is not spectacular but you know those those huge climbs which can get that racing which is is really dynamic do you think that it's hard to compete with those uh, those other races now
4: well i mean i think you know the women's to twi- irrespective of of what kind of course they have um they they always bring a spectacle in terms mm. of the support and the crowds you know so um in that way like They've never lost that. That's that's always been the same. And that's always what's made it special, you know, the people coming out to watch. Because at the end of the day, you know, the fans and the people, that's what makes the sport, right? I mean, we we are entertainers at the end of the day. So to have real-life people out on course um, is really awesome. I think where obviously, you know, they've had a fair amount of competition is really around TV coverage. Um, so that's one place where they are maybe still a little or, or a little bit behind um, the rest. But, you know, for me, that's not a deal-breaker, um, Um, in this case because at least you know the crowds are out to watch Mm. um and that's also really important um but i think what has been a challenge for the women's tour is um is the fact that you know when you have a giro or a tour de femme with big mountain passes um then often you know Riders like myself, um, who yeah, my biggest strength is climbing. Then we often do tend to kind of focus more on those tours. And the way women cycling is prog- is progressing is that it is becoming more um, more specialist. Or you know, there's the depth is growing. So if you want to perform at a tour de femme, you, you do need to focus on it. Um, so I think that's kind of the challenge now is that the women's um, calendar is just filling up. You know, mm. and so the biggest riders really have to be selective um on their races but you know as I said I'm really happy this year that it's working out so with the Giro uh racing the women's tour was a bit tight you know mm. um and didn't really suit so well because they were the gap between was kind of too big um you know it would almost have been better if the gap was smaller you know to do both but now with the women's tour and the Twitter thumb, it makes sense you know it's it's the right gap um, so, yeah, I think it's all evolving and I'm happy to be going back as, you know, probably one of the favourites in the GC contention. And yeah, I'm, there are a lot of, of top riders going out to race. I'm really happy to see that because the women's tour deserves that. You know, as I said, they, they've they been pioneers.
1: And obviously Demi Vollering is, is your teammate. She's not expecting to, she's also the defending champ, but she's not expecting to, to be uh, returning to the women's tour this year. But how have you enjoyed, we've seen so much of you and Demi Vollering playing off each other. Um, and it's been incredibly successful this year, you know, in the Ardennes at, at Zulia as well. How have you enjoyed combining with her and playing off of each other's strengths?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's been great. I, I absolutely love being part of the SD Works team. Um, we're a really strong team. Um, it's been a bit of a, a change for us now, obviously not having Anna van der Brecken anymore. You know, she is in the car, which is absolutely amazing um, because it's incredible having a director that's so fresh off um, the road, you know, so her experience um, and her feeling for the road is still very fresh, you know, in her mind. So that gives her an um, an extra sort of... Advantage, I think, as as a director, and we're very grateful to have that. Um, but you know, it has been a little bit of a learning curve for for Demi and I because we were the trio, you know, Demi, Anna, and myself. Um, and now Demi and I are kind of trying to find our way around not having Anna anymore, but working her and I, which has been going really well. But sometimes we have. All in a little short so mm. you know third and fourth rather than you know first and fourth um so yeah we're still figuring out the the finer details um to nail it every time um but yeah we make a great combination you know where um we're both strong on the climbs both punchy um but yeah demi is is usually really great at finishing it off in the sprints so yeah That way we can combine our strengths. You know, I can try to light it up a bit earlier. And if it doesn't work out, then, you know, I just make sure Demi's there and lead her out for the sprint. So, yeah, it's been great.
3: Well, I expect Ashley Moorman-Passio will like the look of Black Mountain and the fact that it comes at the end of the stage, on stage five of the women's tour. And I think one of the interesting things is that Demi Vollering is not defending her title. This year she is altitude training in the Alps ahead of the Tour de France femme, the first Tour de France femme, which of course goes to La Planche de bellefi a, a really significant climb, um, another level above Black Mountain, of course, but it also really sort of strikes me that the the women 's peloton is getting more fractured as the objectives. Um, broaden and as riders begin to specialise a bit as well. And it's kind of that next phase, isn't it? The calendar has ballooned. Um, the the peloton itself is gradually getting bigger and the riders have got choices they've got options I mean maybe four or five years ago the top riders would have done everything but now they are picking and choosing which races to do and of course this is the first big stage race of three with the Giro and then the Tour de France Femme coming in relatively quick succession and so the top riders understandably will um, pick and choose and and the Tour de France fam is likely to be at such a level that the riders who really, really have their eyes on that will dedicate absolutely everything to it and may well feel that, clearly do feel that an altitude camp at this point, it's exactly the right distance out from the start of the Tour de France. So it's, uh, it does feel like the, the kind of another sort of development in the women's peloton, seeing riders picking and choosing their objectives like this.
1: Yeah, it is difficult, though, because the women's teams are so much uh, smaller than the men's teams that now now that there are kind of backed almost back-to-back stage races, it, it's actually difficult to juggle. And, and you know, it, it's leaving teams really struggling. You know, they can't have one team that is the Giro team and one team that is the Tour de France Femme team. There has someone, because the teams are so small, there has to be someone who's doing both of those and add into that all of the other stage races that we've had. Itzulia was not that long ago. Walter Burgos was even closer than the women's tour. You know, it's becoming a really packed calendar. And my only concern is whether the size of women's cycling is big enough to kind of handle all of the the number of races um, that we've got. And, and also, you know, we've got a kind of state where um, a lot of the key GC riders are also um, classics riders. And I know, obviously, in the men's side of things, uh, Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel actually get a lot of attention, and and Julianne-Philippe get a lot of attention for being riders who kind of can do uh, all of those very well. But that's because that's, you know, bucking the trend in the women's side of things. uh, You know, it's Demi Vollering that will be on the top step during the Classic and then will also be on the top step for GC uh, in a stage race, so I think it's it's actually a difficult situation to manage and I'm kind of keen to see how the teams will manage it. I
2: think that is the worry for, in terms of the calendar and I think that's kind of separate in a way. I think whenever we're looking at expanding women's racism, we've talked about this before, that there simply is not the, the... We don't have the numbers and the teams to be able to fulfil every race commitment in a way that we would like to see and in a way that does all the racing justice. Um, however, I do find it exciting to see that riders are able to develop specialties now in the way that, you know, a couple of years ago they couldn't, and they all had to be a Wout van art and a Julian Alaphilippe and, and be a master of all trades. Now, at least we are able to identify the riders who will shine at certain stage races and shine at certain classics or whatever, rather than expecting them to turn up to the start line of every single race, um, but it's interesting to see how the Tour de France fam is sort of shaping things. And and I spoke to Ellen van Dyke about it and um, I was asking her about the level of excitement within the peloton. You know, is there a level of excitement? And and it does seem from speaking to her that, that it is dominating people's minds and attentions a lot, which is a good thing. You know, it's fun. It's something to really hang your hat on and to look forward to. And she was saying how so many of the teams now have been doing recons of the Tour de France. And she was saying that she thinks that's fairly new in terms of stage races, at least, that teams would have done recons of the the big one-day classics, but not so much the stage races, or maybe the key GC riders for the key GC days of the Giro, for example. But for teams to go and do a full recon of a full stage race is quite exceptional. And I, and I asked Ezra Trump about this, um, the team manager of Jumbo Visma. She says they've already done their Tour de France recon at this stage. She says that that is becoming more of a feature of women's races now. So they would do the Giro. They would do um, Touringen, for example, the key stages of Turingen. But it certainly seems that it's becoming um, more widespread across women's racing. And it's not to say that it's catching up with men's racing. I don't think it needs to. And I don't think it needs to ape it. And I'd rather it didn't ape it. But it's just a level of professionalism that I really like. And um, that goes alongside the concern about the the added stress and strain that adds to very, very stretched resources within teams. Um, But to look at it from a performance perspective point of view, and, and certainly in terms of the ambition of the teams, you know, and and how thorough they want to be and and certain teams can be now when it comes to their race preparation, that's exciting. You know, you want to see a Tour de France fam that's raced by riders who know what's coming up, you know, so that they know when they're going to attack, they know what part of the the route is going to suit them to try to make time on everyone else. That's fun, you know. Um, but yeah, it certainly... The specialising and the specialisms doors and can leave the team stretched. If you look at it, Sulia, for example, SD works only had four riders. They still managed to win the GC and the Young Riders jersey and the points jersey. But um, yeah, this continually stretched, but um, exciting. They're my headlines.
3: <laughs> but of course, it is only a handful of riders who really have that luxury, of course, don't of they? To,
2: Tiny uh, handful. You know, Demi
3: Vollering, Anime van Vluten. You know, one or two more, maybe. Um, and I'm, I suppose we're in a in, in in a phase of growth and development where I suppose it's a slightly better problem to have for the medium term development of the sport. It's far better to have too many events and perhaps not enough riders than to have loads of riders with nothing to ride. That would be a worse um situation for the development of the sport but with rosters between 12 and 15 riders in the women's world tour you're right the the teams are going to be very stretched three big stage races coming up um it only takes an injury a couple of injuries illness and teams will be down to as they say in football the bare bones and and having to Put riders into action, or or start with with um, reduced lineups. Um, so I suppose in the short term, the current peloton bears the load of this development, um, whilst. Basically, the, the, the teams kind of catch up and realise that, uh, well, first of all, they need the UCI rules to to change to basically enable them to have, carry bigger rosters. The economics need to work better so that they can carry bigger rosters. And and I, I guess that will be the next phase of development. So in the short term, we've got these three fantastic stage races coming up over the summer. And I suppose the one sort of note of caution would be we, we just don't want people getting to the Tour de France Femme kind of um, you know with teams um, you know shortened in terms of their options because of the racing that's come before which you know I mean that's that's a problem for the sport anyway but um, you know I I guess that's why certain riders are putting so much focus on to the Tour de France Femme because they want to get there in the, the peak condition and, and not suffer any mishaps exactly, on the way Exactly
1: but as you say very exciting and, and the next time that we three will get back together again will be after the first of that trio of stage races which is the women's tour. I wonder if how many recons of Black Mountain have been taking, full team recons of Black Mountain have been taking place. Maybe one Could or two actually, been,
2: maybe uh, one or two. Cer- certainly a GC rider or two I would expect so at this stage, yeah. maybe
1: yeah. I hope so
3: I mean you guys you guys reconned we, it in 2019 from a distant cafe yes
1: we did I can tell you the quality of the Barabrith was very high uh, yeah we can recommend high. a
2: good, a good brew spot yes
1: so yeah if anyone else wants any more mm. tips for Black Mountain let me know Ellen Van Dyke give me a call might be able to help you out on that one you never know but yes lots of exciting racing uh, to uh, get on with and as you mentioned all of it we're going to be seeing uh, the Women's Tour live live streamed this time mm-hmm. so that's that is Big an exciting change. development for the race um in itself but i'm going to let you uh let you guys uh, go back to your uh bike watching dens um because there <laughs> seems to be so much to watch that i can't believe that you ever leave the many many monitors playing many different types of bike racing all at the same time so i'm going to let you guys go so thank you very much orla thank you very much and thank you lionel and see you both very soon
3: Thank you, Rose. Thank you all. See Orla. you
1: next time.
3: The Cycling Podcast
1: was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney.